are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 14. Today we are in Pico Buyorcas. Well, some lovely atmosphere to open tonight's episode. It sounded very like church bells, Daniel. Am I, am I correct? You are, Richard. You are as sharp. Oh, jackpot. You're as sharp as ever. They were the church bells this morning in a lovely place, which was a real discovery, a real revelation for me, called Trujillo, where we stayed last night. Um, I knew that um, it was some kind of tourist attraction. Didn't really realize how beautiful it was with a gorgeous um, central square, not really a square, more a circle, an oval, slightly reminiscent of Piazza del Campo. And I also didn't know that its most famous son was a gentleman called Francisco Pizarro, Um, who, in the 16th century, led the Spanish conquest of Peru. Um, I don't know if you can hear in the background here, there's a local gentleman who's getting quite animated and quite angry about the, the journalist at this well to having, having led the conquest of his street, um, of his driveway. Huh. Um, so apologies for that. Oh, dear. Second night in a row, we've had a, an argument raging in the background. It's a welter. <laughs> Something... Is that we'll so the heat? Yeah. We're talk, talking of fractious uh, affairs, occurrences. Um, we'll discuss later, won't we? What what happened after yesterday's stage? We sort of missed it, didn't we? Well, we we knew there was confusion as to whether um, Fabio Jakobsen had punctured or just not had good legs, and there was a postscript, quite a spicy postscript, which dragged on into the morning and was very much topic of conversation at the start today. Very much so, and we this morning I received the latest audio diary from our diarist James Knox of the Kunin Quickstep, of course, and he alluded to a, a, a debrief, a quite an animated debrief of what happened in the sprint yesterday, which he uh, he's diplomatically kept out of because he's not a sprinter. <laughs> Thanks for that, James. Uh, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll we'll be hearing from James in Monday's Come to Zero, and I can maybe touch a bit more on that later on. Um, but yeah, very interesting postscript to uh, to yesterday's finish. Very interesting indeed, and very revealing of um, uh, Fabio Jakobsen and his. You know, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about his his courage and his determination to come back, but the the will to win seems to be as strong as ever, and uh, that's what you need as a sprinter, isn't it? But that's yesterday. What about today? What happened, Lionel? Give us the tale of the etapa, please. With pleasure, Richard. Yes. Well, a stage win for Roman Bardet third stage win for team dsm it was stage 14 from don benito to pico viecas uh 165 kilometers featured a climb on the way um not named after sevi ballesteros was it but uh, the ballesteros climb and um, Lionel, aptly enough i happen to be staying on a golf course tonight <laughs> there we are. And you, you have interviewed the, you did interview the, the great man, didn't and so, you? Someone, Daniel, at one point, yeah, you and someone pulled it out. I thought this was lost um, in the well, the dustbin of time, probably like most of my other work. Um, but someone very kindly, and and I was very happy about it. Dug this interview up. It was in the official guide of the Tour de France in 2004 and yeah, I spent about 15 minutes, 20 minutes on the phone. Speaking only about cycling with the great Seve um, Ballesteros, one of my childhood heroes. Probably one of my fondest interviews, well, I must say. I, and his, I'm sure. I remember um, him being at the Tour de France in the injuring years, um, even standing outside the sunroof. I remember, seem to remember him at Alpe d'Huez or somewhere. 
um, appearing out the sunroof of, of a car uh, and being quite a regular feature on the tour in those years. And but, named um, he's not, not a bad golfer as well, I and believe. And named one of his sons after Miguel Indurain as well. Well, stage 14, one non-starter. Richard Carapaz pulled out, didn't start the stage today. Ineos Grenadiers lose a man. And, well, the whole race was shaped by a break of 18 riders that got a big lead, 10 minutes, and it was still around about 10 minutes with 50 kilometres to go. And, in fact, the gap went up over the last 50 kilometres of the stage as the riders at the front fought for the victory. Um, At that point, Four riders went clear. Nicola Prudhomme, no relation to Christian Prudhomme, uh, a rider with AG2R. Matt Holmes of Lotto Sudal and welter veteran Danny Navarro. They went clear. And uh, Holmes had the misfortune to puncture out of the break. And as we'll hear a little bit later on, that was actually his first of two punctures today. Um, There was another bit of drama when Jay Vine, who is a bit further back in uh, the the second group of, of the main break, Uh, We talked a bit about him being the winner of Zwift Academy uh, the other day. He uh, crashed when he was taking a bottle from the team car and uh, went down pretty heavily. But that wasn't the end of him either, nor was it the end of Holmes, because he fought his way back up to the front two, and then Seth Van Marker joined them to make it four. Then there was some more drama when Navarro and Van Marker went down on a corner on the descent, and that left Prodom out in front on his own and he went into the bottom of the climb still clear now there was quite a headwind on the long final climb but he did look good on the first half of the climb but perhaps uh, it was beginning to tell as they reached the second half um, Andre Zeitz was chasing and then came a group of Vine who'd fought his way back up and Bardet who very much was the shark in the water today the of the riders in that break probably the most likely winner the most dangerous man with around seven and a half to go tom pidcock uh, started to light things up a bit going off in pursuit of the leader and then they almost all came back together again with around six kilometers to go but that was actually the point at which bardet bridged up as part of that group and just went straight on past and that was it that was the winning move he held on to win the stage the next two riders over the line were Jesus Herrada of Cofidis and Jay Vine. And after that came Pidcock, Champoussin, Holmes, Zeitz, and the one of the men of the day, Prodom, was in ninth, ninth place. Bardet also takes the King of the Mountains jersey from Damiano Caruso. Then came the GC battle back down the mountain, such as it was really, because there wasn't a great deal to right home about Cofidis tried something they launched a bit of a move with Guillaume Martin in it trying to take the red jersey from odd Christian Eiking uh, Louis Menkes was marking that move or well he's got a plausible um, explanation of what he was doing for Antamarche Wanty um, odd Christian Eiking I thought looked pretty good I mean he you know maybe not the most comfortable day he's ever had but he hung in pretty well um, the Martin group was all captured Jumbo Visma was setting a, a reasonably fast but pretty steady pace, I guess. Um, nothing much doing, apart from an attack by Miguel Ango Lopez of Movistar. Just under three kilometres to go, he went. And he had a reasonable gap, but ominously, as they came into the finishing straight, Roglic had more or less closed him down. The gap on the line was only four seconds, and Rog led in the group of Mass, Bernal, Haig, and uh, just off the back of that was Adam Yates. And then a few more gaps opened up. Odd Christian Eiking has had his lead trimmed, but only by four seconds. He is still in red. Roglic is now 1.36 behind. And it might be a very different story tomorrow. It does look a, a more difficult 
perhaps more tactically demanding stage, but we will have to see. You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. My name is Alexis Ryan, and I race for Canyon SRAM. First started using Super Sapiens last year when they came on as a sponsor of the team. My first impressions of it were, it just reaffirmed what I kind of knew about my body when it came to energy consumption during training um, and before training. But then I started to ex experiment with it a little bit more. It was quite interesting to see, for instance, how traveling and jet lag affected my body and affected my blood sugar. So that was a pretty eye-opening experience when you travel across the world. And there's a lot of research around the gut being an important aspect of your circadian rhythm. The more experimented with Super Sapiens, I realized that if I got onto a nutrition plan or like a food meal plan more quickly after traveling over, I reestablished my circadian rhythm more quickly. And I learned that through using Super Sapiens and the biosensor. Well, that was Alexis Ryan of Canyon SRAM, uh, currently racing in the Simac Ladies Tour, World Tour, Women's World Tour race. But she was telling us about Super Sapiens, um, and we are very grateful to Super Sapiens, who are our title sponsor at the Cycling Podcast. Um, if you'd like to enter a competition that we're running in conjunction with Super Sapiens to win three months' worth of Super Sapiens products to measure your blood glucose levels... Um, Go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you'll see there how to submit 60 seconds or less of audio making the case for why you should uh, you should win this fantastic prize. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Well, um, fellas, it didn't perhaps deliver up the, the GC intrigue that we were hoping for today, but it was a pretty entertaining and action-packed um, stage, wasn't it? And a good fight for the, the stage win. Um Bardet, as you said, Lionel, was the shark in the water, the big favourite to to win that. And the challenge for the other riders, as we'll hear from Matt Holmes in a, in a moment or so, was to to try and get away without him. He was a, he was the least popular rider in that in that break. Um, but a lot a lot happened. I mean, a, a really notable performance by Jay Vine, who hit the ground very heavily indeed. And I watching that, I thought that was his uh, Vuelta over. And to see him come back, you know jersey in ribbons numbers hanging off and to to finish third on the stage at one point i thought you know he, he looked like he was perhaps closing on Bardet, but um a really really impressive performance from him and yeah a lot of entertainment and a, 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 a obviously a quality stage winner in roman Bardet. well it was a, a quality stage winner rich and i suppose once that group got away he was the favorite he was the one with most pedigree certainly as far as climbing was concerned i quite enjoyed his description after the stage to some of our colleagues about what had tempted him to go into that break I mean I think you know it was a plan of sorts but he sort of he said he sort of whimsically scanned the Extremadura landscape and he saw these hills rippling away into the distance into this uh, mountain range where the the stage finish ultimately took place but but just that glance at the 
up the the terrain sort of took his fancy and and that convinced him to go away in the break and and thereafter really I, I, I thought that it was well it was mainly a waiting game although he did um, he did ride pretty hard up the Collado the Ballesteros and maybe slightly too hard um, he I don't know whether it was inadvertent but he certainly split the 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 group um, on there and it sort of came back together afterwards but then on the final climb he really impressed me by just how patient he was and I was sort of intrigued after the finish to find out whether he had panicked at all particularly when uh, Podom was down the road and his lead was was around about a minute and seemed to be going out and uh, in fact at that point I sort of turned to the AG2R press officer here and I sort of whispered well it looks like it could be in the bag and about 30 seconds like later um, Roma Bardet was chasing him down uh, and he didn't didn't take too long to catch him did did he but here was what Roman Bardet said about exactly why he'd launched the move when he did I've seen this on the on the road book um, but uh, it was really the decisive moment it's when Matt in the radio reminds me about this uh, because he's yeah he started to feel that I, I started to get mad uh, because no one wanted to, to commit and uh, and really uh, yeah try try to win this stage so I said no okay uh, don't don't care about the race sit at the back for QK and then we we'll, when you reach the the steep part just just give it a go and see what happens interesting to hear Bardet crediting uh, Matt Winston uh, the sports director who we we know well and whose influence in that team seems to be growing but it's I think he's the third DSM rider to to actually name check him you know chris hamilton did it and michael mcstorer um have all mentioned uh winston and his his Morris enthusiasm winner, michael storer <laughs> yeah yeah michael mcstorer and his his enthusiasm and and, and attention to detail uh, is really um a factor in the success that they're having at this vuelta and it's another one rich of this well this flourish of, of victories they've had since um, well, since late July, since 31st of um, July, they have had seven wins now, having previously only had one this season. And, well, three of them have come from Stora. No, four, in fact, have come from Stora, two from Bardet and one from Nicholas Arndt. I mean, they had a great season last year, didn't they? But the season only started on the 31st <laughs> of July, so maybe that's the key for them. They should just concentrate on the second half of the season yeah you mentioned his patience there Daniel I mean it must have been tricky for him the outstanding climber in the group certainly the one with the the the, the biggest pedigree with three Tour de France stage wins to his name's obviously been on the podium at the Tour de France won the king of the mountains at the Tour de France and this is the third time he's been in a break at the Welter since that crash early relatively early in the race when his GC hopes were um, you know, dashed if if that was what he was coming into the race for. But as you say, the sort of the patience to to not not panic as that gap was going up and and not perhaps go too early and actually wait for the part of the climb where he would be able to make the the most efficient gains, I guess. But all eyes must have been on him. Yes, Lionel. I think everyone in that group knew that Bardet was going to be the big threat, and there, were, there was a certain amount of well, trepidation as to what he might do. I think that was certainly the case of Matt Holmes. Um, Holmes is a, a really interesting character. Came into the the World Tour last year and immediately impressed a lot of people. Uh, that, well, he won a stage at the he won on Willonga Hill, mate, didn't he? 
uh, the tour down under. And then what on Richie Port Mountain. Yes. And then later in the year, rode the Giro and, well, narrowly missed out on a stage victory. It was the day that Alex Dowsett won. Uh, and I've been speaking to Matt Holmes um, quite a bit here at the Vuelta. And, and he's told me how, well, he still has a lot of regrets um, over that day in Italy in the Giro last year because he felt that he paid his fellow breakaway uh, riders too much respect that day and he'd been slightly overawed um, you know having having ridden for years on the British domestic scene and he was in the world tour in the grand tour and, and um, he didn't really believe in himself enough and he was pretty pretty determined not to let that happen again I can't remember chaps whether we've already also discussed his spreadsheet um, at the world we have not well we have Matt, not but, Matt Holmes yeah. revealed to me earlier in the world that before the race he prepared a chart which he then uh, well, I then managed to tease out of him that it is some form of spreadsheet, um, colour-coded spreadsheet. Um, some of the stages are classed as uh, yellow stages, some are green, some are red. And it turned out that today was a green stage, a stage when he thought that he might well have a chance if he did go in the break. He gave it a pretty good go, and who knows, without those two punctures that you mentioned in the tail of the Etapa Lionel, it could have been even better for him, but I caught up with him after the finish on the Pico de, de Viercas. Well, Matt, as well as being with some very strong riders in that group, you're also very unlucky. I think you had two punctures, didn't yeah. you? Just tell us um, when and, and, and where those happened. Well, I started the attacking, got away, got about a minute gap, and then I got a puncture. And then, uh, yeah, I really didn't want to be in the situation that we were with Bardet there, because he was obviously going to win. So, I don't, Did he win? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was desperate to get away without him. So I went across to the breakaway again on my own, which was a big effort. And then yeah, on the climb, 10k to go, got another puncture to catch up again. And then yeah, just des- I just desperately wanted to get away without Bardet basically. And it wasn't that much better. So it was you know it was doable. So I kept trying, but yeah, eventually just rolled away. <laughs> You told me a few days ago that you were angry at yourself for last year at the Giro for being intimidated when you were in a breakaway by the other guys. I guess that wasn't the case today. No, exactly the opposite. I thought, you know what, I'm going to get out in front and uh, stay on the front foot and it was uh, definitely uh, the way to do it, I think. Well, maybe maybe people disagree because I didn't win, but yeah, I felt good doing it that way. And we've heard already about your spreadsheet where you decide which um, stages suit you. Was today a green day, yellow day? Yeah, I think it was a green day. I can't, I've not really checked it, but I remember thinking it's not very steep uh, before we uh, turned off the big main road. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a green day. Matthew Ballesteros, that cement climb, you went second over the top of that behind Bardet. How was that climb? The steep one? Yeah. Uh, well, it wasn't so bad. We didn't go that hard, but I had to... I had to make it hard because we had the wrong cassette on today. They didn't put a, they didn't put a 32 on, so <laughs> it was easier to go quicker. So I have no idea this, but you know I'll look after myself. You ever talked to the mechanics tonight? Well, yeah, it was in the neutral. We realised, and uh, people were not happy. <laughs> Well, it was a green day for uh, Matt Holmes, but the Boulevard of Broken Dreams for him today. Unfortunately, there you go. Um, there's a there's a, another cultural reference after last night's Friends theme. Uh, 
<laughs> friends themed episode uh very interesting what he said matt holmes about um having the wrong gears on that the mechanics hadn't put a small enough a small enough sprocket on uh that they realized in the in the neutralized zone i mean it's unusual for a writer to admit that in in a, in a post-stage interview um i think it does been a, happen an error in the team it does happen well i won't say often but i've certainly heard that before well, speaking of mistakes, um, who was at fault for the terrible crash uh, for Jay Vine? It looked as though, I mean, let's, I, I should say, it is incredible that this doesn't happen more often. Um, I, it looked like he was taking a bottle and, and getting a bit of, you know, a bit, a bit of assistance from the, the bottle, the sticky bottle. I mean, those, and, those bottles can get very sticky. If you put a sort of a, yeah, a sugary in, in energy heat. drink in and it gets on the outside, it does stick to your hands, oh, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really... Mm tough to get off but no i mean there's a moment where you know you grab hold of the bottle and the car accelerates and it looked like in that moment his car just just, just kind of drifted on almost underneath the car and there was a collision and down he went i mean it was it was a really hard heavy crash and i was kind of amazed that he got back up and then astonished that he got in back into the brake and then what's even more astonished and amazed than than that to, to see him on the attack flabbergasted flabbergasted it was it was uh, uh i was stunned it was it was an amazing performance from him and, and shows his talent and it does make you wonder what he might have been capable of had that not happened um a really strong ride from him in his first grand tour and he's um, celebrating but, a, a contract extension isn't he i think that's he, right. that was announced overnight or a couple of days ago Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much to Science and Sport for their support of the cycling podcast. Very much appreciated indeed. And if you'd like your 25% off all your Science and Sport goodies, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25. I'm actually out of Science and Sport products and I need to put in my order because... What I find most difficult when I don't have any science and sports stuff is just what what do you eat instead? Um, it, it's just handily packaged and sized, and you know it's got what you need in it. So I need some more um, science and sports stuff. I'll be putting in my order next I week. I can tell you, it's what, it's what very lofty objective is this for? Sorry, what lofty, what lofty just, just objective? Just to get is just this? to get round rides properly fueled, just to Daniel. Get to the boulangerie. <laughs> Just think, no, the boulang the boulangerie comes here actually in his little oh. van every morning, which is which is handy. I mean, it's just but a baguette, a baguette isn't great energy food. It's just a, a very efficient way of fueling, isn't it? I mean, it's difficult to carry a sort of three course meal, roast dinner, um, jam roly poly and custard, you know, and get the equivalent calories front and you're, you're not is. really paying the same attention to the actual makeup of the nutrition are you if you you know no i i i'd, I'd run out and i took some rice cakes with honey the other day but they just they just didn't they they, they blasted me about 300 meters before i needed <laughs> something else to eat anyway that's enough of that um we didn't see much of a GC battle, did we, today? A little skirmish. Um, Superman was on the attack. There was a headwind, wasn't there, uh, on the climb, which made getting away difficult and, and encouraged the group to kind of stay together. Egan Bernal said he had his best day so far, which is encouraging. Um, Jack Haig still looks very dangerous. And uh, otherwise, I don't think we learned an awful lot today, did we, Daniel? We didn't. And in fact, without 
further ado, Rich, we hear a bit more about that headwind from the Bahrain victorious pair, Jack Haig and, Haig and Mader. Mader. Haig and Mader, a, a popular ice cream or purveyor of household goods, perhaps, I don't know. Yeah, there was uh, quite a lot of wind here at the final sort of top 10Ks, and uh, it really played a really big role, and the majority of it was headwind. So I saw Lopez go and uh, tried to assess who had teammates, and Rolich still had uh, Sepp and a couple of other guys there, so I decided just to wait in the wheels and uh, sort of save those really big efforts for later on when there could potentially be more time gained. Those five or three seconds that he got were definitely probably pretty hard five or three seconds out there on his own in the wind, so... I'm happy with uh, how it finished up. Jack, let's take it back 60 kilometers. How hard was that cement climb there, that goat path? Did it make a difference for the GC? Did you think it weakened the legs for everybody? Um, no, nah, I don't reckon. I know a lot of guys changed the gearing to have 36 tooth chain rings, um, but I had a 39 and it was okay. And uh, we didn't go up it super fast, so I wouldn't say it did too much damage to anyone. Do you know, the, the fact that Superman attacked into that headwind, he was the only one really who risked it or wanted to do it. Does that make it even more impressive that he was man- he managed to get away, maybe even more worrying for his rivals? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Hats off uh, for, like, having having the courage, having the, mot- uh, I wouldn't call it motivation, but still, uh, to go into such a, head str- uh, a strong headwind, uh, you, need, you need a lot of confidence and... Uh, well, that's uh, kind of worrying for the for the rest, but uh, I don't think uh, Jack is too worried because, ah, as we already mentioned a few times, he's he's super strong and he's getting only stronger. It shows the Movistar aren't here to play. Ah, uh, we need her. So, chaps, that was Gina Maida, sort of agreeing with me what what I instinctively thought when Superman Lopez, well, when he did come home a couple of seconds ahead of Primoz Roglic, escaped Roglification, then that was a bold move and, and a bit of a shot across the bowels of Jumbo Visma, although it didn't yield that much. And I also thought that Egan Bernal coming in with Roglic might give them a little bit of cause for concern as well because they what they don't want, Jumbo Visma, is a resurgent Bernal um, in the last week. There's more than enough climbing, more than enough terrain for him to come back into the race I think the the fear of of Yates and well Carapaz is out of the race now so some of the fears that Jumbo Visma had when they came into the race um, have been um, allayed but Bernal might just be sneaking back into contention well I've already written him off haven't I um, so I can't now write him back in uh, but I was looking back at the 2019 tour that he won when he was off the pace for the first 10 days. So remember in the Pyrenees, Thibaut Pino was the man in form. Bernal was, was just slipping seconds here and there. He, he didn't lose quite as much then as he's lost so far in this race. And he hasn't looked as, as good here as he, did, as he did then, even though he was losing a bit of time. But, um, yeah, I mean, you don't want him as, as close as he is with the stages still to come, perhaps. You know, there is still... There's still potentially a threat there, and if he's felt good today, that will give him a bit of a, a following wind over the next few days, you'd think. I would have thought Movistar would be happy if Bernal did have a resurgence in the final week of the race because it might open the door for some opportunities for them because Jumbo Visma would be given 
the job of having to keep an eye on Bernal might have to react to what Bernal does. The more people that are alive in the GC fight, the better for Movistar, and it gives them the best opportunity to use um, their two prongs um, to some kind of effect and maybe maybe just open the door on um, Jumbo Visma because I think if, if it's just Movistar against Jumbo Visma, Probably Roglic is uh, is is kind of already there as long you know assuming he doesn't um, you know suffer some kind of crack. I mean we're assuming that he's going to see through, or I'm assuming he's going to see through the final week uh, in good enough condition to to win the race. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see if if Bernal can come alive again and and put a bit of pressure on. It might well open the door for some other people. There was no fun rog today, chaps, in the mix zone. He didn't come into the mix zone fun uh, this morning. But what, I wonder whether we, whether what we saw in the race, in those closing kilometres, was wise rog. Um, we talked earlier in the Vuelta, didn't we, about Jumbo Visma possibly trying to be a little bit more conservative. And um, I t- spoke to Stephen Kreiswijk about that, and he, he confirmed that was the case. And... Rog not going after Superman. You can either you could either interpret that as a little bit of a I don't know backhanded compliment to uh, Superman or a, a bit of an insult that Rog doesn't really consider him as much of a danger as he does Emric Mass. Or it was it was smart tactic, smart play by Primoz Roglic not to waste energy. He still had Sep Kuss there. He used Kuss as much as possible. Um, and only really moved when when Kuss had done his work, and um, yeah, it might be that Roglic, well, it was saving himself for a better opportunity to sink that dagger a little bit deeper tomorrow. Um, at least that might be what he's planning. Well, chaps, let's turn our attention back briefly to yesterday because some video emerged, as they say. Um, overnight, uh, actually posted by the the Vuelta itself, uh, showing the moment when Fabio Jakobsen caught up with Florian Seneschal yesterday. Seneschal, of course, Jakobsen's lead-out man, who once De Kooning Quickstep had lost Jakobsen, they carried on with their lead-out. Um, Seneschal won the sprint ahead of Matteo Trentin, and Jakobsen, when he came across the line, he hadn't been able to hold the wheels. He had apparently said, I don't have the legs, you you go on, or maybe he just said, I don't have the legs. We're not quite clear on that. Um, they did go on. Seneschal won the stage. Jakobsen, when he caught up with Seneschal, did say congrats, but it was, uh, you know, he was, he was, um, he, he wasn't best well, the pleased. First thing he did, the first thing he did was point out what Seneschal did mm. wrong, had done wrong as a leader man. He, he said, we're in the video um, you see him, hear him saying to Seneschal, if you're going to lead me out, you need to look over your shoulder. And mm. um, that was yeah. obviously what Seneschal had not done. Yeah, it was a very revealing little moment, wasn't it? Because it did show, it, it did show that will to win, that 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 selfishness that you need as a a sprinter. Um, and. I think that, you know, we spoke in last night's episode and you, you spoke, Daniel, about how good friends they are, the two of them, Seneschal and Jakobsen, and they're very close, partly because they were together when he had his terrible crash at the Tour of Poland last year. And that story of Jakobsen's return, comeback return, and, and um, you know, stage wins here at the Vuelta has, has been a real feel-good story. And there was just it was just a moment watching that where you saw... The mask kind of slipped a little bit, and Jakobsen, um, 
you know, was in the end happy for his his teammate and friend, but his 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 strongest emotion at the finish was disappointment and, and slight irritation that his team had abandoned him when he we, began to struggle in the closing stages. You say the mask slipped, Rich. Well, so did Florian Seneschal's expression, didn't it? Yeah, um, his face oh, sort really of did. well, it sort of sunk, which was which was quite sad to watch. Actually, um, I, I, it's I like can when you tell give someone you a, a present and and they <laughs> they unwrap it. And, and they're obviously really disappointed and, and it's just, you know, yeah, it felt it like that, like, didn't it? It was like that. I can tell you there were some discussions um, this morning at the start between Vuelta officials and people from the Koenig Quickstep who were not happy that that clip had surfaced on the official social media channels of the Vuelta. Um, I think it, it had only been published, it had mm. only surfaced there and and they were not particularly amused at all and then came the inevitable pretty unsavory certainly as far as i'm concerned i hate to see these pile-ups i'm sorry pile-ups pylons which ensued um and fabio jacobson was the the target of that he apparently went to seneschal's room last night i don't think they're rooming together and well you talked about the the debrief that happened jacobson also apologized to seneschal for his reaction that had been caught on camera and well we and our colleagues also caught up with Seneschal this morning and asked him for his postscript and his version of that discussion after the stage and what had happened later in the evening it's, it's nothing just when you have sprinter when you have a lot of pressure uh, the team right for you uh, it's normal you have this reaction and after in hotel you come back tomorrow uh, for your story for for my action it's, it's not me it's like uh, just after the finish you have adrenaline and you know uh, you you are my friend and i am very happy for you to win and for sure we can win again in vuelta and we can continue to work together it's not problem it's just uh, in twitter uh, a lot of people uh, like this, this story but for me it's nothing um, no problem with Fabio. Yeah, first time I look back, I I uh, uh, I speak with the, the guys. Fabio is not there. We stay calm, but maybe for sure he was there. But three riders behind me, and we stay calm. Uh, voilà. Just I think uh, you not have a super legs. He closed two time a gap, and uh, the last three k is very, very fast. It's a, it's a game, but we have another chance for him for sure. Chaps, there was one other Florian Seneschal-related postscript from last night. There was a, another story that surfaced um, last night. Um, in a ring, the, the Twitter account mentioned that Florian Seneschal, a couple of years ago, he tried to secure a contract for his friend Loic Chetou, who at that point looked as though he was going to have to retire. He was running for Cofidis. And, well, not only did he try to secure a contract, but, um, well, he went a bit further. Um, he explains, Florian Seneschal explains how and why in this clip from this morning. This time, speaking in French to me, as I said this morning, in Don Benito. Yes, it's that. In fact, Patrick, he was at my marriage and also Loic. Yes, Patrick was at my wedding and so was Loic. A pair of them were chatting about the following year and Loic may be joining the team. Patrick said, OK, but I've got no money and I have enough riders. But somehow it wasn't an emphatic no. 
So I called Patrick later and said, listen, Patrick, Loic's not asking for a whole lot of money and I can afford to pay half of it. So see what you can do. He said that he'd call Loic and also talk to the rest of the team management about it. But unfortunately, it really came down to him having too many riders. The roster was full. That said, he did take Shane Archbold, and I think that was maybe a mistake because Shane's now leaving, whereas I think Loic would have been a great domestique with a fantastic attitude. So yes, Patrick maybe got that wrong, and Loic could have carried on riding, but I guess it's still a nice story for people. Not many riders offer to pay a teammate's salary, but I was willing to do it to have a friend on the team. It wasn't a joke. Loic's a great guy, and I could see that he was suffering. I wanted to help him, and I could see the offer also made him happy. I also didn't mind making that financial sacrifice. In fact, I'd do it again for a friend. Interesting to hear from Senechal. I mean, I think it's, it'd be very harsh to judge Jakobsen on his reaction immediately after the finish like that because, you know... Uh, he's not had time to compose himself or to really arrange his thoughts properly. You know, he would have been gearing up for the, the sprint there. He'd have been bitterly disappointed that there were these splits and that he wasn't able to hang on to his train. That would have been his overriding emotion at the time. And that, that's what came out in his first exchange with Seneschal. I, I don't think I don't think it's fair to... I, I said that the mask slipped and, and, you know, we saw something quite revealing. And we did, but what we saw was his determination to win, his focus on winning, which was overwhelming for him at the time. And, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's, it would be fair to, to judge him too harshly on that, particularly when, you know, when, when he's calmed down a bit and moved on, that he, he has apologised and I, I'm sure now feels very, very happy for Seneschal. I mentioned James Knox has, has touched on it in his audio diary. you hear that in Kilometre Zero on Monday, but clearly there was a bit of a, a discussion in the team and I'm sure matters have been resolved now. Yeah, I mean Jakobsen's entitled to be disappointed both with his own um, inability to follow the wheels and perhaps with the sort of, you know, the, the stark reality of elite professional sport in the heat of the moment. What are we talking about? We're talking about sort of two, three minutes of action at the end of a um, you know, a hot, long, hot day of racing, you know, that's all perfectly understandable. Um, but I don't think that uh, Van Leerberger or Seneschal did anything wrong. Their job as, as the lead out is to keep the pace as high as possible. And we saw the other day when, you know, perhaps the pace wasn't quite high enough and uh, EF Education Nippo were able to take advantage of that and jump and um, net a stage win for Magnus Court. You, you can't ease off two kilometers inside the final two kilometers because your sprinter isn't holding the wheel you know if Seneschal had looked behind and thought oh he's not following he's not you know yeah they maybe could have eased off and lost the stage as a team and then the inquest would have been completely different wouldn't it I think the point about the team being unhappy about the welter um, releasing the footage on social media again it's it's unfortunate that the reaction ends up being a bit of a pile on and, and everyone sort of you know either splitting splitting and taking sides um i think it would be a shame if that sort of insight and access were um to basically just go away because teams became sensitive that you know raw emotional moments after victory and defeat um were broadcast and and the reaction was you know not in line with the, the the PR goals of the team. I think that the sport needs 
um, that kind of insight, and it needs this kind of story every now and again, just because it it shows and, what and, it's all and, about, doesn't it? And now we cross live to Matt Holmes with his mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then chaps, you also get into this issue, the much broader issue of TV rights and who owns the footage, who owns the product, the entertainment itself, and you know that area behind the podium it is part of the race, and it, it is. The, the race organisations real estate which you know the teams are tr- have tried in vain to to a large extent to sort of wrestle back um, over the past few years with things like Velon and, and now um, their own videographers um, at races which who are being sort of tolerated more or less but I've seen incidents this year there was one at the Tour de France where um, the Movistar videographer wasn't allowed um, into the finish area and then as a result we were told we couldn't ask Movistar riders questions that day because they were unhappy so that is it it's a hot topic it may not be one that's affecting the racing very much or that the people at home are, are aware of but that is um well th- this is a, a further installment in that debate i would say well where are we off to tomorrow daniel where are you off to tomorrow well chaps we're heading into this little known mountain range the sierra de gredos uh, which is to the west of madrid which became famous in the vuelta a España in 1983 when bernard Hino where he sort of built, um, sealed his Vuelta victory in the Sierra de Gredos. A couple of years ago, we had um, Tadej Pogacar claiming the third of his three-stage wins in that big breakthrough Vuelta 2019. And yeah, tomorrow we're heading into, into the mountains there, and we're finishing at a place called El Baraco, which is a pretty unassuming little town, but it's very well known in cycling because it was the birthplace of Jose Maria Jimenez, um, Jose Maria Jimenez also gives his name to the finishing straight tomorrow at the Calle Jose Maria Jimenez. I think Lionel can tell us a bit more about who Jose Maria Jimenez was, El Chava. Well, yeah, Jose Maria Jimenez was one of the, uh, I think of them as a, a sort of triumvirate of um, tragic figures really from the, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, the others being Marco Pantani and Frank Vandenbrucker, who all... Um, you know, had trouble with um, addiction of some kind and, and you know, sailing too close to the sun perhaps and all paid for that with their lives. Um, Jimenez was third overall in the 1998 Welter. He had two spells in the lead in that race and in fact he led going into the penultimate stage time trial but lost out to his teammate Abraham Alano he was fifth the following year 1999 and in total won nine stages of the welter including the first ever visit to the Angliru also in 1999 who did he catch who did he catch oh, well, we'll hear if we might hear that in a minute oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he won four king of the mountains titles and one points competition he was also Spanish road race champion but Um, His career came to a premature end at the end of 2001 and he was treated for depression shortly afterwards. In fact, his last pro race was the final stage of that 2001 Welter in Madrid. He'd won three stages of the race, both the King of the Mountains and Points competition titles and was one of the uh, figures who really illuminated that Welter. Um, There were reports over the next year months and year that he'd been struggling with alcohol and cocaine abuse and mental health problems because he was in a psychiatric hospital in Madrid in December 2003 when he died suddenly of a heart attack aged just 32 so 
a, a really tragic story and a rider who did light up the welter and also the tour de france he had a top 10 finish in the tour as well he did light up races lionel and i don't know about you chas but i was a big fan of his a real swashbuckler he was a kind of an, an untypical climber in the sense he was quite heavy i think he was um getting on for 70 kilos but he was one of these guys who looked very very dynamic um on the bike and he used to launch these sort of what looked like very improbable attacks that often ended in victory and certainly someone whose whose mark on Spanish professional cycling is is deeper and more vivid and more important than just uh, those victories that that you described there just his palmares and tomorrow going back to El Barajo um, he will be in everyone's thoughts, I think, particularly people on the race organization. Fernando Escartín is kind of the root designer of the Vuelta and he battled with El Chava many times. I thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, hear a little bit more about who El Chava Jiménez was um, from people who rode with him. So we're going to hear from Santi Blanco, who was a contemporary of El Chava um, Blanco, who was once talked about as the next Miguel Inderain. Um, from the same part of Spain as Jiménez, and also a journalist, José Carlos Carabias, who knew El Chava very well. And Richard, in the background, um, Mm. we're going to hear a few little interludes here um, from that famous day on the Angliru in 1999. And you might even hear the name of the rider who was, um, tragically, as far as I was concerned, caught more or less on the line and overtaken by José María Jiménez. son los que ocupan las primeras posiciones en el desarrollo de esta octava etapa de la Vuelta Ciclista a España. Yeah, I'm Jose Carlos Carabias from the ABC newspaper. I, I was uh, from Avila, uh, the place where uh, uh, there is a, a, a big uh, passion for cycling, uh, where uh, uh, Carlos Sastre, Chava Jiménez, Ángel Arroyo and another one uh, cyclist uh, life and right. La carretera es muy difícil que te supere. No, vamos a ver si Chava bueno, pues ha llegado, tiene esa Chava, visión. Por lo menos ha llegado a alcanzar sí, a Chava adelántale que si no se momento. te va. He he was a, a special person. No special cyclist, special person. He was a altruist person that uh, he, he wants to 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 be happy and to make happy to the other persons uh, near, her, near him. And, uh, but, for example, when he was at uh, Volta Catalunya, he, he saw um, a Ferrari or a Porsche, I don't remember what, but uh, a high-level uh, car in a, in a shop car. Probably 30 minutes for the beginning of the, of the stage. He went inside the, the shop car and, uh, no, no, Put me that that car, like a orange or a, an apple. Put me that car, and he he came for uh, for the Ferrari after or for the Mercedes. I don't remember. And they took uh, he took the he took the the car after the the stage. He returned to the to the car shop and go with his uh, Ferrari. Y vamos a ver. Yo creo que es muy difícil que superen ahí a un corredor. 
bueno, pues yo creo que el primer recuerdo, pues lo bien que conectamos cuando nos conocimos, ¿no? Él ya estaba en el equipo profesional de Vanesto, yo estaba en el equipo amateur. My mind always just goes back to when we first met, when he was already in Banesto's pro team and I was in one of their feeder teams. We're from the same part of Spain, so we soon started travelling to races together and really becoming close. The thing I really treasure is just the memory of how we liked and appreciated each other, what I learned from him. Tomorrow's going to be a sad day, and in fact my hairs are standing up on end just thinking about it, because we're going to his home and his people. What was he like? Well, cheerful, cheerful, cheerful. Cheerful, smiling, happy all the time. He took the positive from every negative. I remember a stage race, I think the Tour of the Basque Country, and we were supposed to be the team's protected riders, but we both missed the move of about 40 guys. Well, it was like the end of the world for me. Chava was immediately trying to cheer me up, telling me we'd turn it around. That was him, always cheerful, always looking on the bright side. He was a genius, but a genius on the bike. If he'd been a footballer, he'd have been someone like Romario. He used to say to me, Blanco, watch me win today. And very often when he said that, he'd be true to his word, which is extremely hard to do in cycling. He'd win eight out of ten times. The problem was that when he couldn't win, he wasn't interested even in coming second or third. Whereas you have other riders who would give anything to finish 10th, 15th, 20th. He wasn't like that. He'd say, I either win or there's no point. Espléndido José María Jiménez en esta finalización de la etapa aquí en la cima del Angliru cuando ya parecía imposible. He, he was at, uh, near, uh, near my home in Madrid. Madrid uh, is a big, big city and uh, casualty, uh, he, he was uh, the last days of his life in a hospital uh, near my home and uh, I remember him always being a, a, a friendly person with the other uh, illness uh, people. For example, I remember, I remember he, he was uh, to the Burger King to, to take burgers for all the people that was in the, in the hospital with him. I, I said to him, but Chava, what, what do you do? Ah, they need it. They need. Uh, they need to, to, to be happy and it's for, for, for him, the, the burgers of Burger King were, were a, a, a moment of, of happiness. He was uh, a very special person for me and I miss a lot. No solo la alcanzó, sino que consiguió la victoria de etapa. Pero vamos a seguir viendo lo que sucede en la carrera, que todavía faltan corredores por llegar. La alegría del Chava, transmitida a todos ustedes. Yeah, Pavel Tonkov was the rider um, whose hopes were dashed by the very dashing Jimenez. He was a very dashing rider, wasn't he? He said swashbuckling, um, uh, Daniel. But he was um, he was handsome. He looked good. It's funny because he was, his brother-in-law was Carlos Sastre. Um, Correct. Whose palmarès, you know, is probably, probably punches more of a hole because he won the Tour de France. But actually, Jimenez, over the, the few years where he was in his pomp, probably probably left more of an impression in a way because because of this the style of his victories and 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 his attacks and 
He was sort of um, Zorro-like, wasn't he, on the bike? He was Zorro-like, exactly, yeah, yeah. Dashing and swashbuckling, absolutely. Well, I'm sure the Vuelta will be paying uh, homage to um, Jose Maria Jimenez tomorrow. Um, I was and, hoping, uh, chaps, I was hoping today I'd been promised a date with Eusebio Unthue, the Movistar manager. Oh, speaking of now, dashing. Well, yeah, that's been, that's been pushed back to tomorrow, but couldn't speak to Eusebio this morning because I was told he was with the Spanish Secretary of Sport and um, the um, Movistar press, press officer was very upset about this, that um, Eusebio was keeping me waiting, but I said, look, you know, I understand. I, I know usually, for example, <laughs> when we go to the, the Giro, you know, the Italian, the American ambassador to Italy, he drops everything <laughs> to come right. and meet us, but I quite understand that Eusebio uh, needs to be with the... You know, with the Spanish government minister rather than cycling podcast. Maybe the Spani- maybe the Spanish government are getting involved in the movie star tactics. Yes, towards tomorrow morning, chaps. I hope to speak to Eusebio about Enric Mas, Superman, all things movie star, including that documentary. Oh, great! Looking forward to that. Um, really looking forward to that, actually. Um, well, and looking forward to the stage. Let's hope it's a it's a humdinger before the rest day and my journey back out to Spain to reconnect with the Vuelta, which I'm looking forward to. What have you got planned for me in the final week, Daniel? Well, I thought maybe before one stage start, Rich, say half an hour before a stage start, we could just pop out of the mix zone and buy ourselves a Ferrari and then (laughs) complete the stage in the Ferrari, a la Chava Jimenez. Well, I will have the Cycling Podcast credit card with me, Daniel. So, in fact, you've got it, um, which has been causing me a lot of anxiety over the last week or so um, but on checking the account regularly only every sort of few minutes or so um, <laughs> you, you've been uh, pretty disciplined with it so that's that's encouraging um, anyway uh, we'll, we'll connect with you again tomorrow looking forward to uh, tomorrow's stage um, have a good evening and uh, eat well tonight thanks chaps thank you Lionel thank you guys <laughs>